From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. As Dan Mullen frequently points out, the beauty of competition is there's always a winner and a loser. So regardless of the game, there are stakes. The Gators have unfortunately found themselves on the wrong side of that equation lately. And as a result, some significant changes came within the football program after the loss at South Carolina. On today's show, we'll welcome in FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss the shakeup to the coaching staff and what it means for the immediate future, the shift in tone from the top, men's basketball's opening night win, women's basketball's solid start, the life and career of Gator great Ronnie Williams, and the best farewell tours in the PAT. Then, We'll connect with redshirt freshman Richie Leonard to learn how the big man ended up on Florida's offensive line, how he drew inspiration from his mom's battle against breast cancer, and more. To get us underway, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan that loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where pet lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Let's get our roundtable going this week with the, the obvious place to start. That is, of course, uh, the changes to the football staff. I think pretty much everyone knew there were changes coming, although most thought it'd be the end of the season. Uh, but obviously, uh, the South Carolina game did not go well, uh, and there was you know some necessity for making a move a little bit sooner. So uh, let's talk about you know what happened this week with Todd Grantham, with John Hevesy, uh, that shakeup and, and what that means for this staff in the, the, you know, the very near-term future. Well, yeah, when you uh, lose a game like South Carolina, Adam, that one, they've had some tough losses this year. That was the one that I think sent off alarms, uh, you know, certainly in the fan base and internally as well. I mean, Dan Mullen, uh, you know, he's he was faced a situation where he even said, I didn't see that coming, you know, that performance. And, uh, it, you know, anybody who watched the game could tell that that was not, what uh, they expect the Gators to play like. Uh, just, you know, they had some extenuating circumstances. A lot of guys have been sick all week. Uh, some, you know, Anthony Richardson hurt his knee. Uh, so there, were, there was just a lot of things behind the scenes that they've been dealing with all week. But bottom line is they, they, they're, they aren't using those as excuses. Uh, there really was no excuse by just coming out there and, uh, you know, South Carolina scores 30 unanswered points after it's 10 to 10. And and it was just, whoa, where'd this come from? And and so after the game, uh, you know, I remember just obviously the tone after the game was very bleak in the post-game press conference. And then afterward, Dan Mullen and Scott Strickland go down the corridor and start talking privately. And, and Scott talks with a couple of other of his uh, – admins, you know, before we head on the team bus. So you knew uh, something was developing. You just didn't know what it was. And then, of course, Sunday night, uh, you know, news starts breaking that Ty Grantham and John Hevesy are, are uh, no longer with the program. And uh, Mullen said it after the game, they got whipped on both lines of scrimmage. I mean, and so those guys, their job is, 
you know, they deal with those that group the most. I mean, they're what happens at the line of scrimmage. That was their expertise. And, you know, you see these things happen, guys. And, you know, sometimes they do make a difference in the middle of a season. Sometimes they don't. I don't know how this was this one's gonna turn out, but I think from a big picture PR perspective, just the mood of the fan base with what's going on this year. I think there were, there had to be something done. Uh, and, and Mullen made those moves. I mean, they were tough moves for him. When you cut ties with uh, a guy that you've worked with for 20 years and John Hevis, you know, that had to be a difficult conversation. And then of course, Todd Grantham, who he brought here from Mississippi state. Uh, I'm sure that was difficult. And, you know, those guys are good coaches. I mean, they've proven themselves as good coaches, but there's just some disconnect with what we've seen on the field in 2021 uh, and what they're trying to do uh, that was just exposed in a glaring fashion in that loss at South Carolina. And now, you know, they're they're dealing with some moves. Christian Robinson will take over calling the defense. Paul Pascaloni, who veteran coach, 107 games at Syracuse's head coach, had one of his biggest wins ever against uh, the Gators back in 1991. Uh, he's been around the block, was former defensive coordinator for the Detroit Lions before he came back here or came here to join Mullen and a special assistant to the head coach. And then um, what Michael Saleem will take over the offensive line duties, Mullen said he will be heavily involved in that uh, position group as well. So how does that all translate, guys? We're going to know on Saturday – Against Sanford, we'll get a look and see if those moves make any difference. But right now, I think uh, if nothing else, the noise got turned down a little bit uh, this week after the moves, and now we'll see will they make a difference. And, you know, there, there'll be more down the road. This was just kind of the the in-season moves that Mullen Felly had to make. Yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that other than I think the fact is that after a performance like that, 20 points favorite. You get you get outgained in yardage by a, a opponent that was ranked among the bottom of the not just the SEC but the country in offense and third string quarterback transfer from St. Francis. I mean, it's just it, it, you got to do something. You have to give red meat not to the fans necessarily, but to your players, just to kind of say, look, you know, this isn't this isn't good enough. You have, uh, saying it apparently wasn't working. So you had to do something, and unfortunately, that it comes at the expense of 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 Jod Hennessy and and Todd Grantham from their from, from their perspective. But um, you know they'll be fine. They'll 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 go on and coach somewhere else. Like Scott says, they're good coaches. You don't all of a sudden like wake up in the morning and all of a sudden become a bad coach when you've had the kind of track record record they have had before. But whatever their message was um, uh, the last few weeks wasn't resonating, and it's it is really kind of amazing what's happened over, over the course of the last five weeks. You think of Tennessee, look at Tennessee right now, how well they're playing. You know, Florida beat them 38 to 14. Uh, you know, they gave up a couple of big plays in the game and fixed some things and 28 unanswered points. And now Tennessee is, looks like they've figured some stuff out mm-hmm. and Florida, Florida is going in the, in, in a different direction. Well, you know, they got three, they got three more games. The Gators have to figure some things out. The, the Sanford game's not going to be a great barometer, but gosh, I mean, next week at uh, at Missouri, I mean, Florida's had some struggles up there before, that's for sure. They've had some struggles against Missouri here. Yeah. Um, and then the last game against Florida State, I mean, that's, you know, on a national scale, in terms of rivalry games, uh, that's it's not going to really uh, uh, do much on the meter, but 
a lot of fans are going to be interested in that game, boy, as a, as a litmus test to just where this team is. And to Scott's point, um, how these games play out will determine how much more um, activity there is down there in the coach's office. But that's something, you know, we, we have to see play out. So three games starting with Samford. Uh, that's not going to be like, again, that's, that's not going to say much about any difference that's going on right now, but this team needs to need to get out and, and taste some, some kind of success. And Sanford is the, is the next chance to do that. You know, Scott mentioned uh, from a PR standpoint, the, the need to do something. And, and I do think that one noticeable change this week is a real willingness from, from Dan Mullen to say publicly and acknowledge, Hey, this is not going well right now. And I think that a lot of fans have been frustrated with his tone over the course of the last year when things weren't going well and suggesting, oh, nothing's wrong. And, you know, there's something wrong with you for thinking that something is wrong. I think an important part of of getting Florida back where they need to be is the acknowledgement and the understanding of, hey, we talk about Gator Standard. This is not the Gator Standard. Just generally recognizing that things are not where they need to be and taking responsibility for it, which, you know, that's some fans want to see that from their head coach. I imagine players do as well. Yeah, that was a a, a hot topic at a, a speaking engagement I did this week with Gainesville Quarterback Club. They wanted to know why maybe he hasn't addressed some of the concerns publicly and what shifted dramatically. I think this week, and I think what's what's happening here is, I mean, you're seeing a guy who Dan Mullen's a good football coach. I mean, I, I mean, he's. His football team the last four seasons has been a lot more fun, I think, for Gator fans than the previous seven or eight seasons. But he certainly hit a hit a wall here in building the program at Florida. And it's a different kind of program. He's been here before, but he wasn't head coach at Mississippi State. As nice as a job he did there, it's not Florida. Uh, it's a more casual fan base. Uh, he, you're not going to get scrutinized as much as he is or certainly criticized as much as he is going to be at Florida. And I think he's learned some of these things the hard way. And I think this is really where, I mean, the, the word I used is it's, it's soul searching time for Dan Mullen. I mean, I think whatever his final legacy is at Florida, uh, whatever his final, you know, legacy is as a college football coach in the SEC, I think this is going to determine it like what he's able to do, how he's able to revamp this program and where it goes from here because that's where the program is. He's he's going to have to make some real changes in the way he does things. And he, he addressed that on the SEC conference call uh, this week. He said, you got to check your ego. You know, you've got to look at everything, how you've done it, stuff that's not working, what can you change. And just because something has worked in the past, you know, you can't believe that that may – uh, still work here. So I think he's asking himself all these kind of questions. You know, they're really philosophical at this point, so we don't have tangible evidence or results of what they mean yet. But I think in his head right now, that's where he is. He's in the total reevaluation process. And um, he had to it's, – it's been a hard way to get here at that point. But when you're four and five, two and five in the league, uh, you're still not bowl eligible uh, you need two more wins. And, I mean, there's nothing guaranteed when you look at these last three games. Yeah, they sh- you would think they would have a chance to win all three. But uh, after South Carolina, do we really know? So mm-hmm. that's just where, where the program is. We will obviously keep tabs what's happening with football in the coming weeks. Uh, and, you know, hopefully that starts with a win over Sanford. We'll see. 
Um, let's turn our attention to, to basketball. Chris, we've talked a lot about the run-up to the season. Uh, team transfer made its debut, the season opener, and, and a win against Elon that looked a lot better in the first half than in the second. Um, but overall, what, what were your takeaways from Tuesday night in, uh, in the O-Dome? That was pretty much the story of the game, Adam. The, uh, the first half started, started a little bit slow, but then Florida, I think, went on a 30-10 to 10 run that ended the, um, I think, over the last uh, 10 minutes of the, of the first half. And uh, it would have been 30-7. to 7. I think uh, um, the Elon guy hit a, hit a three-pointer at the buzzer uh, to end the first half. But second half to, got, off, got off to a really good start, too. Myron, Myron Jones uh, hit back-to-back threes. Um, uh, and, and I think Tyree Appleby hit a three and all of a sudden the, the Gators are cruising up 28. And then th- from there, things just got a little disjointed. Um, the, the ball was moving really well. I thought the defense was really good with, uh, by, uh, uh, uh Brandon McKissick and, and Flan Fleming, uh, setting the tone on, on that end of the floor. Um, Florida was boxing out and I had a size advantage on Elon, which was a, mid-major program from the Colonial Athletic Association, but um, we're cruising by 28 and things are pretty good. And the score was, e- the, the, the lead was even 25 inside seven minutes to go. But, and Mike White emptied his bench. And it, it, even to that point, even though they were up 25, um, didn't look as good. And then the last seven minutes, I think Eli outscored them 18 to six and got a couple second half points and the second chance points rather. And, um, the backup guys didn't look particularly good. This isn't a deep team. Uh, I can say that right now. I mean, the, the, the seven guys have a lot of experience. The, fr- the first seven guys that are going to play have a lot of experience. They're all either seniors or, or juniors. In a couple cases, fifth-year seniors, at least four of them. Um, so uh, they got to they gotta build some depth. Uh, Kowasi Reeves is a, a freshman who had a, a lot of credentials coming in here from, from Georgia, but I mean, it's, it's, it's going to take him some time to figure things out. I think he's got to slow his, slow his game down a little bit. Uh, 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 Niles Lane was, has really worked on his offense. Uh, it just hasn't translated yet, but I tell you what, he, he, he can guard. There is a, there is a place for him on this team. Uh, Jason Jatobo hasn't played a lot of basketball, but he has gotten into shape. He's done what they asked him to do, and he's down below 290 pounds now. Um, but he, 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 he fouls too much. So there are places, there's roles for these guys in limited situations. They just have to uh, kind of get in, f- find their niches and, and do what they do best versus trying to force some things. But like I said, you know, I, I, I thought Florida was going to score like 85, 90 points. They end up 74-61 win, um, kind of exited the game on a little bit of a downer. Uh, but maybe that's a good thing to kind of get their attention, smack them upside the head because here comes Florida State on Sunday at 1 o'clock, and, you know, the, the, the narrative is, is out there. Florida State has beaten the Gators uh, seven straight games. It's a it's a it's, it's the longest uh, winning streak by either team in the history of the of, of the series. Wow! Uh, it's a string that began in Billy Donovan's last season when Jacob Kurtz had the own goal up in Tallahassee that you know at the buzzer trying to grab a rebound, push the ball back into the into the hole for for FSU. So Mike White hasn't beaten FSU. Leonard Hamilton has taken advantage of Billy Donovan when since Billy Donovan left for the NBA. And really has a stranglehold on 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 recruiting here in the state. So, big game here in town. Uh, 
imagine the crowd, the crowd will be very lively, but I mean, you have to match the physicality and intensity of these Leonard Hamilton teams. They're the same teams every year. He, they have an identity in Tallahassee and they play to it regardless of who the, uh, of who the personnel is. The personnel is going to look, they're, they're going to be big. They're going to be physical. They're going to guard. Um, they may not be a great shooting team, but they will have some shooters and they'll also have four seven footers that the Gators who are an undersized team uh, with the exception of Colin Castleton will have to deal with. Yeah. Colin Castleton had six blocks against Elon uh, could use maybe even more against FSU for Florida to compete with that. He size. may have his shot blocked six times by those seven <laughs> footers actually. Yeah. So, so again, the, the natural question there, Chris is obviously Florida undersized relative to FSU. Most people are relative to FSU. What is the recipe to beat the Seminoles given the pieces that Florida has right now? I mean, uh, match physicality and, 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 and play and play confidence. And you do got to make shots eventually. Now, uh, I don't know the FSU lineup uh, off off the top of my head because because a, a lot of those guys that were there that were there last year, some of their better players are are not there. But I tell you what, they have a couple transfers. They got this kid from Houston, um, and his name escapes me right now, and I apologize for that. Uh, but uh, uh, he he didn't play on Houston's team last year, and Houston still went the Final Four. And people were saying he was going to be the best player on that team last year. I talked to assistant coach Eric Pastrada who. They played. They faced Houston uh, when he was at Oklahoma State last year. Uh, they got Cameron Fletcher, who was a, who was a transfer from Kentucky, who had a, a you know, got in some hot water early on with, um, with with Calipari and didn't play very much. Uh, but I mean, he was a guy. He was a marquee five star five star recruit at Kentucky. So they've kind of reloaded in a similar fashion the way Florida has. But again, it's it's more about uh, I respect Lemmerhans for because again. It's great to have an identity because guys know when they come in how they're supposed to play. And Florida State, you know, has 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 established that. And again, and they've looked the same in during this the seven game winning streak. Some of the games have been really really ugly. Uh, a couple twenty point losses for Florida, and of course last year uh, was the game. Florida was playing really really well early, and then the Keontae Johnson uh, incident happened up there in Tallahassee. They were winning eleven to three at the time. Keontae had just thrown down a one-handed alley-oop dunk in transition, and the Gators were feeling, feeling pretty good about themselves early on in that game. And then, obviously, something that changed uh, the whole uh, direction and narrative of the of the 2021 basketball season. So, yes, last night, Keontae Johnson sitting on the end of the bench cheering his team on. Um, he'll be out there again, but uh, uh, no change. I know some people I've been uh, – I was on a podcast earlier today. People were, people were asking – uh, what's the change? What's the situation, County Johnson? No change on that front, and I don't anticipate one uh, before between now and Florida State certainly. When it, it was a busy day at the Odom too, because it was an opening doubleheader with the women's team starting off against Georgia State, and uh, obviously it's been a really, really tough off season for that program. I'm sure a, a huge sigh of relief to actually start playing games and again and and trying to build back because it's it's been a challenge for them, and they get off to a good start against the the Panthers. They probably took some things away that, that that they weren't particularly pleased of. They let Georgia State. I wouldn't say Georgia State was hanging around, but um, it was a ten point game or so. But I, what, what I'm going to say about this team, it's the most athletic team probably I've seen in the last five or six years here. Um, they're they're faster and they just they they re, they move the ball better than 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 teams I've seen here. So um, I don't know where this is going to go, but. Uh, I think there's reasons to be encouraged, uh, especially when you consider 
you know, what was be, you know, where this place where this team was just a couple months ago, wasn't sure what was going on in the program. And, and, and there was the, the clouds hanging over and girls in the, in the transfer portal. But, um, you know, Kiara Smith and Lavender Briggs are, were all SEC players last year. They're both back. They both had good games to start off the season. Um, the arrival of, of, of Zippy Broughton, who was from, uh, from Rutgers, she was a marquee recruit out of Alabama and she's a, she's a very, very good defensive player. So, I mean, they, they have, they have a talent level that I don't think they've had here in a while in a different kind of talent level because of their athleticism. So this remains to be seen how it's going to happen, but I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here. I don't see this as one of those three and 15 SEC teams. Uh, or four and whatever that, that that four and fourteen that we've seen in recent years. I think um, coaching staff brought in some, some pretty good players. I tell you what, uh, Manu Dielvera is a uh, she's like she reminds me of Will You Get that kind of player. She she made winning plays whether it was a, a rebound or a, a driving dish or a offensive uh, a stick back or something like that. She was to have her back after missing a whole year in Brazil last year because of COVID. Is 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 going to help this team? It just makes them that much that much deeper. So, I think Kelly Ray has an idea of what she wants on this team. I think the players are, are have a element of optimism and and have a a degree of they just like to be around each other. I think, and I just think the the tone in in the building on that side of the building is a lot different than it's been, uh, obviously, than it has been the last few years. Yeah. Very good to hear. And, and we'll keep showing their progress as they move through the early portion of their season as well. Um, before we turn to our PAT, one one sad story that we need to talk about, and that is the, the passing of Ronnie Williams, um, Florida's all-time leading scorer on the men's side and really a, a Gator legend, Chris. And I know you had a chance to, to profile him and, and sort of look back at his career and his legacy. Um, but yeah, cancer has cost us a lot of really good people. And uh, unfortunately, another name was added to that list this week. 2,090 points, the all-time scorer in, uh, in, in Florida history. Uh, he was on that, uh, that team that came down and really started what would be the, I would say, the reconstruction of Florida basketball when Norm Sloan came here for his, for his second stint. Uh, I talked to Monty Tao, who's now the coach at Oak Hall. Uh, he, was, uh, he, came, he was obviously a great point guard on the NC State National Championship team with David Thompson, played with Norm Sloan. And then coached with him here was the assistant coach here with him. But uh, he, Ronnie Williams was one of their first recruits. He saw him. He was he was out of he was out of Queens. This is a guy, and I remember when I was a student at USF. Uh, USF was actually the best uh, basketball program in the state of Florida back then, mm-hmm. if you can believe that. They started a tournament back then where they where they included uh, Florida, Florida State, South Florida, and Jacksonville. And it started that had the first one they had in Tampa, the second one they had in Gainesville, but it, it got disbanded for some USF won both of them. But Ronnie Williams was part of this class, this, this first class. And from the time he got on this campus with, uh, I don't know how other way to put it with his big ass, that's what he had. He had a big backside that he could <laughs> back people down or anywhere from the elbow inside. He could carve out an area and it didn't matter if it was, a, I'm going old school here. If it was, Melvin Turpin or Sam Bowie or Dale Ellis, whoever was guarding him down low, uh, he could get a, he could get his shot off. And he had an array of offensive moves down there um, that were very, very old school, but very, very effective. 
and that's how you average 19 points a game over four years. The only player in Florida in Gator history to lead the team in scoring all four years. But that team, they started four freshmen. They weren't a very good team, but by the time Ronnie Williams left, the Gators were in the NIT for the just the second time in program history, and it's just the second postseason bid in program history. And he was a forefather, if you will, on kind of the trajectory that Florida started to build with Norm Sloan. And uh, it's funny, I wrote that story um, about uh, his passing from brain cancer at the age of 59. And I got as much response from that story as I had from, uh, from just about anyone I've written the last few months, because so many people remember that era of Florida basketball as being maybe um, not necessarily, maybe being the start of something and remember how good a player what, uh, Ronnie Williams was. And obviously you got to be really, really good to be one of two players in school history to score over 2000 points, actually three players, if you count Vernon Maxwell. Yeah, quite the legacy for sure, and, and a Gator great that, that fans uh, will always remember. I want to turn our attention now to our PAT, and uh, something that happened with the start of college basketball season was the beginning of the Coach K farewell tour. Remember, he announced this will be his last season as Duke's head coach. It's hard to imagine anybody else having that job, but this will be the, the end for him, which means that starting on Tuesday against Kentucky up at MSG and going forward, you're going to have the... Uh, the pageantry that follows as he makes that last visit to so many places. You can, I mean, imagine what it's going to be like when he goes to uh, the Dean Dome for the last time, for example. Some of those where he has been a, a hated figure for years. It's going to be a little bit of a different tone as he's given his his proper respect on his way out. But it got me thinking about farewell tours because we've seen them from coaches. We've seen them more from legendary players who announce it's their final year and they get that every stop along the way. Uh, so whether it's someone you covered, something you observed, I'm curious for, for both of you, memorable farewell tours in sports. Well, I mean, you know, they're more common now, Adam. Uh, obviously, it seems to me at least they're more common. Maybe that's because we hear about them more. But the first one that I remember as a sports fan probably was back in the late 80s. I think it was the 89-90 season when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar kind of did his his farewell tour. He, everyone knew he was retiring. He announced it before the season. And I remember, you know, every time he was in a visiting city for the last time, they would have a ceremony on the court and he would present all the – or they would present all these gifts. And uh, it was just something that I hadn't really thought of, I guess, at that point in my uh, sports fandom, you know, it's like, oh, this is different. But, you know, he's the NBA's all-time leading scorer. And here we are 30 years later. And he's still the – is he still the NBA's all-time leading scorer? I think I think so. I don't think anybody's actually yeah. passed him. Uh, so that is one that, that certainly stands out. Um, and it just, you know, I, I can only imagine they, they're getting bigger and bigger, it seems. I mean – you know, we you mentioned uh, or we were talking earlier off the air. You know, Derek Jeter uh, back in two thousand. Wow, has it been this long? Was it thirteen or fourteen? Somewhere around there. Gosh, he it was did, that long ago. It's been six, seven years. Wow. Yeah. He did his farewell tour, and of course, I mean, he's a he's a legend in New York, and there's nowhere you can have a big a farewell tour more than New York, uh, Yankee <laughs> yeah. Stadium. That was obviously. A huge, um, a huge event uh, in recent years. 
uh, as another baseball guy, I remember I mean Chipper Jones. Yeah, you know, everybody knew when he was leaving as a Braves fan. I kind of paid a little extra attention to how he was doing that year. But I, I mean, to me, I guess for me, Kareem's the one that just jumps out the most because I guess at that point that was the first time I'd ever thought about a farewell tour, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's more before him and. There's been plenty since, but that's the one that resonated with me the most. And you you mentioned Chipper. I I remember going to a game that season and I was in town. I went to a game and I knew it was going to be the last time I saw him. And I I remember taking lots of pictures of his last at bat. And again, the the finality of that, knowing it's the last time that you'll see – you know, what for me was, you know, the legendary athlete of, of my childhood where I grew up in Atlanta. Um, so they can be very impactful, especially if it's people that played for, you know, for, for your teams. Yeah. And there's special events. You remember, I remember when I was covering the double raise with Lou Pinella, uh, was manager and we were out in Seattle and Jay Buner, uh, was retiring. And so I remember they had a, a ceremony and they had Lou come out and say some words and, you know, Buner, uh, was a big part of those teams in Seattle with Ken Griffey Jr. and Randy Johnson that finally got Seattle on the baseball map. And, of course, Lou was the manager. Uh, so it, it is a cool – I can imagine if it's your team, your your player, that yeah. would be certainly – you you want to be at those kind of uh, moments. It seems like baseball lends itself to those uh, reunion tours the best. I mean, I what about Cal Ripkins? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, he, he – he had a pretty good one, and I think maybe the most recent one uh, would have been Mariano Rivera. Yeah, you you went to the games to see these guys play one more time. I, I'm I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Did Peyton Manning kind of have one? Did he announce that this was his uh, that it was going to be his last year? I don't so know that he maybe... officially announced it, but I think the sense was that if they won the Super Bowl, he was going to to go out. Yeah, and I and I think people wait. I don't know that it was ever announced, but I mean, I think. Michael Jordan's last uh, last year he played was kind of like an unofficial kind of uh, uh, farewell tour, if if you will. But um, and of course, you know, when 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 you got guys that are that are bad players, I guess you, they kind of have their own farewell tour and, and without <laughs> having to announce it or whatever. So, um, <laughs> but uh, I tell you what, the the one I want to see, and I don't know if he would ever announce or if he just walks away, is Tom Brady because uh, yeah. it's too bad that. It didn't happen this year because uh, uh, he would have had a nice little as if he didn't have a good enough send off up in up in New England. But um, he may not even be be ready to shut it down anytime soon, uh, being being at the top of his game. But it's gonna, uh, he's going to have one. It's going to be like 2034. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's yeah. right. It's, it's, and maybe like one of his one of his kids will be like playing college football or something. That's like right. that. Yeah. And you see it could be like yeah. Griffey, like Griffey Sr. and Griffey Jr. They'll be playing on the same team probably. I think Roy Williams could have had one last year, um, I, but I'm not sure he even knew that he was going to retire until uh, af- after the season. Then maybe he had some did some soul searching with the transfer portal and what where recruiting was headed and whatever. But he certainly could have had a hell of a one uh, last year. But you know, some guys aren't into that stuff. The mm-hmm. the you know the 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 adoration of the of every time you walk into arena probably probably grows grows a little bit old, but. Um, this is some Coach K wanted to do, and he will. Uh, he'll he'll get all the attention. Uh, um, you know, he'll 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 be the storyline in just about every place he goes for for one last time. Yeah, certainly no shortage of candidates for uh for great farewell tours. I was thinking about Kobe's as well. Um, when he when he scored how many he scored in his last game? Was it sixty? He scored in his final game, and 
that was one of those that was just, I mean, that was magic. I mean, if you, I remember watching that and it was, it's not too often you remember a game that was of almost no consequence. It was the last game of the season for a team that didn't make the playoffs, but I remember watching it because of what Kobe did that night and just how, how transcendent that was. So for sure, there's some guys really rise to the occasion, especially if you're on the court, on the field, you have a better chance to do it than if you're, than if you're on the sidelines. Um, but anyway, these guys will be on the sidelines throughout the coming week, covering everything the Gators have going on. That means Chris with basketball, Scott will be on football as well. And again, it's going to, there's a lot of stories playing out here in the next few weeks. We will see how they go. We will be following all of them at FloridaGators.com and on Twitter at Gators, Scott at Gators, Chris, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Football can often seem like a towering challenge, but at the end of the day, it is just a game, and you can choose whether or not you want to play. That perspective is easier to attain when you've been through the last 12 months in Richie Leonard's life, as the redshirt freshman's world was turned upside down when his mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. You should know up front this story does have a happy ending, and it's one that serves as a reminder to lean on the ones you love because you never know what curveballs life can throw your way. So my family, my immediate family, it's um, me, my mom, my dad, and I got an older sister. Um, me and my sister were both born in Miami, Florida, uh, which is where my mom is from. We lived down there for a couple years and then moved up to uh, Cocoa, Florida, which is where my dad is from. Uh, my parents met in college at Bethune-Cookman University. They've been together. Yesterday was actually their like, 20, 23rd anniversary. Wow. Yeah. From what I've read, it seems football kind of got started pretty early for you. How did you get introduced to the game? I actually, I played, I played flag football when I was younger. My parents wouldn't even let me play tackles because of the really? whole, yeah, the, their perspective on the head injury thing. So huh. pretty much I played just baseball and basketball all the way up until ninth grade. When did you really gravitate toward it and, and convince your parents to, to let you play? It was always something they, you know, when they saw my size growing up, you know, they figured at one point or another, I would, I would give it another try. And then when I got to ninth grade, um, uh, another an older player who's actually uh, our families are real close friends. Uh, Jawan Taylor, who played here a couple of years uh, ago, mm-hmm. he put that was on, yeah. But he went to my uh, high school. We're he, we're from the same place, and uh, it was him on me every single day, uh, <laughs> telling me to come out and, and come come to spring football practice. And then that eighth grade, the spring of my eighth grade year, because we it's a junior senior high school, I went out and started playing. So. You noted that one of the reasons you were you were actively recruited is because you were a big guy. Um, so, given that, were you instantly just plopped on the uh, on the line, or did you try and play other spots in the field? How did you become a lineman? Yeah, I uh, I started off playing defensive line at first, <laughs> and then uh, my old high school coach, Coach Will, uh, he's like, I like how how athletic you are, and I think that that gives you a really bright future on the offensive line more than just a defensive line. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. And been playing it ever since. Yeah, how did you take to that? Because I guess if, if you're if you're broken in on the defensive side, then the benefit is you get to hit people. Um, if you're on the offensive side, you don't get to hit as many people. So was that how did how did you get sold on that transition? Uh, I didn't even want to do it at first. I was like, no, I didn't. I don't want to be an offensive lineman. You know, it was just my my perspective from somebody who didn't know the game of football at the time. You know, I looked at it as something that that I just that wasn't for me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, after over years and after continuously playing, I wouldn't want to play any other position. And it's a, the best position in football, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny you said that one of the reasons that they wanted to switch you is because of your athleticism. I think there's a perception that to be on the offensive line, you just got to be like a, a big, like a big block, right? Like you're just there taking up space. Talk about the athleticism and everything else that goes into being a lineman that I feel like most people, probably myself included, probably don't know. You 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 do have to have a lot of athleticism to play offensive line because to be able to defensive linemen are naturally, you know, supposed to be more athletic than offensive linemen, you know, just Mm -hmm. generally. Um, So to be able to, like, to be over 300-plus pounds and try to match what they're doing and, you know, counter the things that they're doing takes a whole lot of of athleticism. And um, being able to – it's a lot of footwork stuff, too, because say, for instance, if there's a defensive lineman uh, who's a bigger guy, as an offensive lineman, there isn't a point when I'm blocking him that my feet can be slower than his or in a better, in a worse position than his. Mm-hmm. So to be able to to move my feet as quick as he's moving his and be able to keep a base, it takes a lot of athleticism. So with your background in baseball and basketball, what elements of those sports were you able to use to help you develop as a lineman and, and really, as you're talking about, take that athleticism to, to a new level? Oh, yeah. Basketball, that's where I get, you know, all the footwork stuff from. Uh, my dad's been working on post moves with me since I was <laughs> since I, as long as I can remember, probably since I first picked up the basketball at two or three years old. Um, so basketball, definitely you get the footwork and baseball, I get the hand-out coordination. Mm-hmm. If you had to, to say the biggest influence on your athletic career, who would that be and why? Yeah, absolutely, my dad. Um, he just he's laid the foundation very early in me and my sister because um, my sister was also an athlete. She did she three in track and field. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, he just he taught us how to do everything right. Like not even the, not the specifics, but how you handle yourself in sports. You know, like when I was younger, if I if I was playing in a baseball game and I would struck out or something you know you can't go to the to the dugout and throw your helmet or something like that you know mm-hmm. it's you gotta just the the things that he instilled in us very very early is is huge and me still today so when the recruiting process got started what do you remember about that where were the first offers from how did you even like how did that even get initiated for you that that became something you were looking into my first offer i got from um Rutgers, and i remember it was my 10th grade the spring of my 10th grade year so yeah going going into my 11th grade season spring of my uh 10th grade year is when I got the first offer and uh when I once I got that it was it kind of set in my head like okay it's going to be football you know because I I was still playing all three sports you know just just working trying to get a scholarship and something mm-hmm. and then um when those when that first offer came in it was a it was a huge feeling of relief honestly, but it made me want to work a lot harder to get a lot more. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So as that process played out, um, how did Florida get in the mix? What do you remember about the Gators and and their, their entry into your recruiting? Florida came in the mix kind of late. Um, Honestly, Florida was actually my, my last offer, but I had a great relationship with coach Hevesy ever since I was in probably 10th grade. Um, just from recruiting, like on visits and going to camps and up there or up here. 
um, and stuff like that. And then, you know, we got the, a, a real good pipeline. We had two players out of Cocoa High School come here and be successful here. Um, so, yeah, that's how that's how Florida came in the picture. Hmm. Um, what ultimately sold you? I mean, when you had to make that decision, as you said, it was one of your last offers. A lot of times guys are, are more prone to lean to the schools that ran on them early. So what was it that took you over the top and, and made you want to be a Gator? Oh, yeah, just, just the combination of, of athletics and academics. Uh, you know, there isn't many places where you can play for a football program like ours um, and get a top five education, a, a education from a top five public university. So. Well, and I know how close-knit your family is, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but how important was it for you to stay relatively close to home? Uh, you know, Gainesville is not too far away from, from Coco. Rutgers is a, a little further out. Yeah. Uh, it was it was something that my parents, off from the beginning, you know, they told me, don't worry about us. You know, we don't. you don't have to feel like you need to stay close to home, you know, even – if I would have went to a place like Rutgers, they'd probably be able to, or they'd probably try to make all of the the flights out to the, all the games. Um, so just I, I wanted to be closer because, quite honestly, I don't really like the cold. <laughs> uh, it wasn't something that I was quite ready to get used to just yet. And you know, it's different representing your state. You know, when you get to wear Florida across your chest, it's just it's something special about that. When you got on campus, who showed you the ropes? What do you remember about kind of getting started and how you were introduced into the program, to the line, et cetera? Oh, uh, I was I was good buddies with uh, Brett Heggie uh, hmm. last year. He was a guy that you, as a young guy, wanted to watch because he did all the right things. So seeing seeing how he carried himself, did, doing things like being in the training room, taking care of his body, um, you know, how he watched and studied film, how he practiced, things like that, so... He was a, a good guy to look up to. Hmm. Um, you, you talk about modeling your game after other players, and, and I think that's that's such a question that we ask of quarterbacks and of bat of like running backs and receivers, right? We don't think about that with linemen because again, they're not usually the guys that you focus on. But that obviously you do. Uh, what guys at the next level do you look up to? Are there any any figures you watch them and you study them the way that you talked about with with Brett? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ryan Jensen. Uh, I think every center should watch him play. Uh, he's a center for the Bucks, um, and also Shaq Mason. I, I look up to him a lot because we have really uh, similar body types. Uh, you know, he's about probably six one, six two. I'm about six two, and um, he still gets the job done at guard in the league. So, mm. um, you're talking about that position and, and just what comes with it when you're on the offensive line where do you get your kicks from, right? Like, what is it, what is success to you if you don't get to be the one standing in the end zone? Right? What is it for you that, that makes it worthwhile? Seeing those guys score, honestly. You know, it's, if, you ever, if you ever watch a game, the, the offensive line is probably more excited than the guy who scores every time that there's a touchdown, you know? Um, so it's because it's a team game. You know, the offensive line is the only position in all of sports where, you know, there's not really any official stats or anything, but, you know, wins and losses. And we're trying to trying to see our guys get in the end zone. Like, that's where – that's our goal. That's our job, to protect our guys, you know. So that's, yeah, that's a good point you make because you don't really have a lot of stats, right? So what is it – how do you measure yourself? How do you – you know, when you guys are evaluating, is it just – is it eye test? Is it I felt like I played well? How do you grade yourself? 
when we grade ourselves, it's more about uh, your the technique that we're using on each and every play and assignment. Yeah, the offensive line is something of a family. Uh, your family, your your real family back home, has gone through a lot over the course of the last year. And I'm not sure, you know, to what degree people know about your story. Um, but can you tell us about specifically what happened with your mom, with her diagnosis, and just how that really flipped everything for your family in in the last year? So it was we had we had a, a couple of days off last April. I don't remember what it was for specifically, but um, they had gave us some time off, so I went home. And my sister was home at the time as well. She actually she goes to law school in Louisiana, um, but she was home for some reason too. And uh, it was kind of a, a weird a weird vibe around the house when I got back there. I could kind of sense something was up, but didn't really know what was going on. And then after about a day of us being there, uh, my dad took me and my sister aside and told us the news that uh, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and it was just shocking. Uh, I had no idea. I never would have guessed or expected. I don't know. I didn't know what to think, honestly. Um, but the way that that she handled it, like, was just amazing to see. Because as soon as as soon as they told us, uh, the first thing that my mom said was, you know, I don't want this to to train wreck you guys' lives or anything. You know, just keep doing what you're doing. Focus on school. Um, and, and football for me. Um, she's going to be okay, and she's a fighter, and uh, it worked out. Yeah, what was it like during that time trying to stay focused on what you're doing? And, and again, she's saying, don't worry about me, but obviously you're going to. So how did, how did you support her and continue doing the things that you needed to do for yourself at the same time? Uh, it was difficult. It was very difficult. But I just I made sure that we communicated very well. Every morning, you know, before she had any type of treatment or anything like that, I'm calling her before and after just to see how she's feeling and and things like that. Yeah, the craziest part of the story is when I read about it that she never missed a game this entire time. Um, I mean, I don't even know how you do that, but what 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 kind of lengths was she going to to ensure that she didn't miss a game while going through all these treatments and dealing with them? I'm sure a, a lot of pain. Yeah, absolutely. And um, she she told me it was something that I didn't know. Um, well, basically, when when someone is going through chemo, things like like just being out in the sun, like completely just drained her. Mm. Like you know, she was she. There were times where she was about ready to to pass out, like just from sitting out there at the game. So the the fact that she knew how the experience would affect her and still came out to each and every game. To support me, it just it speaks volumes for the type of person that she is. And what did that do for you? I mean, what what kind of motivation did that give you to see what she was doing with what she was going through? I'm sure you know any struggles that you had probably you know felt like nothing by comparison. Yeah, absolutely. You know, any it it just it changed my perspective on a lot of things. Any little problems that I was having, it was nothing compared to what she was going through. And she still made it out to every one of her son's football games. You know, like if she could do that, there isn't anything that I can't do. Yeah, it's making me wonder, did she, has she ever missed a game your entire life? Like, (laughs) can you think of a game that she's missed? Uh, It's actually one. There was one time. Uh, (laughs) It was a very specific game. It was a little league baseball game. I was about 10 years old. And the game that I hit my very first um, home run in, she was the one game that she was not at. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, but where that, was that, she? 
I forgot what what came up. I don't remember what it was, but it was it was a very good reason because there, she <laughs> wouldn't dismiss it. But that was the only time that she's ever missed a game. So your mom being the, the fighter that she is that you've just described, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that she ultimately, she did beat cancer. She got to ring the bell. Describe what it meant for you and your family when she rang the bell and what that meant about where she was and what she had overcome. Um, it was huge. Um, you know, she she was talking about it. She was so excited about it, uh, about being able to finally go and ring that bell. And, and we just all were so excited for her. Um, it was a, a moment that I hate that I had to miss it. I wish I could have been there in person. Uh, but as soon as I got the video, I was jumping up and down in my apartment. I was so excited. It was, it was a real emotional moment for me. And this is just what, this is just a month or two ago, right? This, this is pretty recent. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. How, how is she doing now? Oh, she's doing real well now. Yeah. She, she's just waiting. Uh, she has to have, uh, a surgery later after this season that's when that's gonna get done so mm. but she's good right now she's doing yeah so okay so so mom is healthy family is good that means i imagine you have a little more time and energy to, to do things outside of the game because it's not being taken up by that what is it that you like to do if you have time to to cut loose or maybe like a free friday night what does that look like a free friday night probably just playing video games with my team <laughs> You know, in the off season, uh, we got in a couple of us got really into golfing. Uh, we don't really have much time in season, but no. you know, when the, when it hits the off season, I'll definitely definitely get back into that. Who's part of the the golf group from your from the team? <laughs> it's uh, me, um, Jonathan Odom, Emery Jones, uh, Jacob Copeland tried it once and went bad. <laughs> uh, and same thing with Keon Zipper. Are any of you good? I mean, who who is the best? How how, how would you rank them? Uh, I'd say Odom, Odom first, then me. Okay. Then then Emery. Okay. How good or bad are we talking here? Like, uh, Odom Odom is really good. Uh, I, I'll never tell him that to his face <laughs> 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 because he won't he won't let me hear the end of it. But but yeah, Odom Odom's a legit golfer. He's he's one of the better better golfers I've seen in person. What what do you shoot? If you went out right now, what would you shoot on eighteen? Probably, uh, I I don't even know, man. If you're breaking a hundred, I think that like to me that's success. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. Last time I did it, so. But do you feel like you could break a hundred? Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, that then, then yeah. It's, see, golf is just it's just what you think you could do, right? Like, oh, my handicap <laughs> is not. You you make you make it what you want to make it, and then people have to come check your work on it. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, I know we're, we're we're running short on time. One more question for you. Um, obviously, you know, on the field right now, it, it's been a tough time for the team. There's really no way around that. Uh, and you guys, you have a new voice in the uh, in in the offensive lineman room. How do you adjust to that at this stage of the season? What has that adjustment been like? I know we're only a few days into it, but can you just tell us about that and and what it means for the the final stretch of the season here? Uh, yeah, you know, this these last couple games were just focus on getting back to, to playing Gator football and um, really, really trying to finish out the season strong on a high note and uh, get get a mentality back that that we had in the beginning of the year. Yeah, just really locking in and, and, and finishing strong. Well, Richie, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we're so glad to hear that your mom's doing well. You know, your, your family, you're a great bunch of Gators, and, and we thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. 
And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.